Hello, and welcome to The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with me today from Nat Geo's incredible four-part docuseries on Disney+, Plus, Secrets of the Whales, is National Geographic explorer and photographer, Brian Scarry. Welcome, Brian. Congratulations on the series. I have to say, watching it made me feel very emotional. I actually cried on a few occasions. Have you had that response from anyone else? Oh, thanks, Stacey. Uh, you know, I have actually in, in regards to the emotional aspect of Secrets of the Whales. Um, that certainly wasn't my intent or intent. <laughs> Haven't we was, cried enough this year, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going for the Barbara Walters uh, award here. But um, yeah, you know, I think I, I think inadvertently we, we've tapped into something that resonates with people, and that is the, the deep emotion that these animals, these whales sort of uh, show us. Yes, it's very, very profound, and I can't wait to talk all about that. But I do want to ask... How does one become a National Geographic explorer and photographer? <laughs> is that is that something that as a kid you saw a cover of the magazine and you said, I want to do that? And how does one pursue that? It really is something that started out when I was a young boy. You know, I, I fell in love with the sea as a child. I grew up in Massachusetts. And even though I didn't live on the coast, my parents would take me to the beaches of Cape Cod and New Hampshire and Rhode Island in the summertime. And I knew from a young age that I wanted to explore the ocean. So... When I was old enough to begin scuba diving at about age 15, I did. I started diving, and it was maybe a year or so after that that I was attending a, a conference, a dive show in Boston, and I saw photographers and filmmakers presenting their work, and I often describe it as an epiphany where I realized that's how I wanted to explore the ocean. But it was a very lofty dream. You know, I came from this little textile mill town, a working-class town, didn't know anybody who did anything like that. So... Um, long evolution, but you know, dreams do come true. That's amazing. And did the movie Jaws dissuade you at all when that became part of the zeitgeist? <laughs> Just the opposite, actually. You know, I think I'm probably one of the few people that actually went toward the water uh, after seeing Jaws. I, I remember being in like the fourth row on June 18th, 1975 or whatever, when that movie came out. And I wanted to be Matt Hooper. I wanted to be the guy down there studying sharks. So uh, I think it was actually more of a motivator to me. <laughs> well, thank you, Steven Spielberg. Absolutely. I would love to know what you think are the biggest misconceptions that we as humans have about whales. How are they misunderstood as far as you can glean? Mm, it's a great question. You know, I often say, or at least in proposing this this project, that, you know, we have probably a multi-billion dollar whale watching industry on planet Earth. People Multi-billion dollars. Wow. Yeah. I mean, all over the world. Yeah. It's just a, a big fundraiser, you know, for, for these entities. And it's a great thing. And folks go on boats and they see a whale breach or a tail slap. And then I just they did eat. that myself a couple of years ago in Juneau. Oh, really wow. Beautiful. Yeah, perfect. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful place. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you eat a hamburger and you go home and, and you just <laughs> say it was a great day. I think the misconception is that and this would be very common, is just that that these are complex animals, that they really do have complicated lives, they have families, they have personalities, they do have emotion, as we mentioned. So I think that's really maybe the misconception. We tend to think of them as these big, you know, cows or something out there. Not to say that cows don't have personality or emotion too, but, <laughs> of course. but you know, the, uh, what we know about whales is that with those big brains, they're doing very complicated things in the ocean, not so different than us. Right. They're not just performing for our gratification, essentially. Correct. Yeah. 
And what inspired you to want to tell this particular story in this four-part format and as a Nat Geo series for Disney Plus? It was sort of a decade-long evolution. Uh, the last big story that I did about whales was for National Geographic magazine in 2008 about the most endangered whale in the world, the North Atlantic right whale. And I compared and contrasted that population with their southern cousins, the southern right whales. And in the decade or more that's evolved since then, I was searching for a narrative that would allow me to do a multi-species project with whales. The trick was finding that thread that would connect those things. And I considered a number of ideas, but it was really this notion of culture uh, that I was starting to hear about. I was reading scientific papers, talking to researchers, attending conferences, and I was amazed to hear that these animals did things much like us, that within a genetically identical species, they're doing things differently depending where in the world they live. So it might be language, dialects, or food preferences, or parenting techniques, or all of these different things. So I initially started with a magazine proposal. It became a, an approved story at National Geographic Magazine. Then I went to television and said, you know, what do you think about doing a, a television series? And that was greenlit, and then it became a book and, you know, sort of organically grew to all of these media platforms. So you're now sort of the Oprah of underwater uh, photography <laughs> and exploration, right? Yeah, I'm looking to form my network next week, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. And that makes perfect sense, of course. And for viewers who may not have seen the series, each episode is centered on a different species, orcas, humpbacks, beluga, and sperm whales. Why did you choose these four to focus on? There was a little bit more science on some of them in terms of their cultures. And before we go too deep into this notion of culture, I want to offer a, a bit of a, a definition. You know, a friend of mine who's a sperm whale biologist, Shane Garrow, he describes the difference between behavior and culture like this. He says, behavior is what we do. Culture is how we do it. So human beings, most humans eat with utensils. Some use chopsticks, others use forks and knives, and that's the difference between behavior and culture. So if a uh, orca in New Zealand likes to, you know, eat a certain type of food, maybe stingrays, they have figured out how to feed on stingrays, and they're the only ones in the world that do it that way. Genetically identical orca in the Falkland Islands like elephant seal pups or the ones in the Norwegian Arctic like herring, a type of fish. So, you know, again, that's pretty unique in the animal kingdom in the sense that they're doing things differently depending on their geography, but it is part of their culture. And then, you know, looking at the cultures that they pass down to their children, that these are their calves, these are learned behaviors. Again, like humans, they're not born with these innate traits, they have to be taught from their parents in many cases. So with each of those four species, there was a bit of rich science that we could at least begin to scratch the surface on some of these things. The belugas were a little bit more remote because they tend to live, of course, in the Arctic where it's harder to work historically. Things are changing, not for the better up there with ice melting. But, you know, I think with humpbacks, they've been studied for many decades. We're, again, only in our infancy in terms of truly understanding their lives. But there was a little bit more grist for the mill, I think, with those species. Hmm. So when you're talking about the difference in behaviors, is it sort of like maybe how a Bengal tiger in Asia maybe feed differently from a tiger living in Africa? They're the same animal, but they have different environments and different evolutions as to how they consume food and feed their young, et cetera. Correct. That's right. I think, you know, there, it's not especially common 
for animals to do things differently. If there's a certain species, they tend to do things much the same way. But with whales, they are, in fact, doing things differently. So, you know, the orca in Patagonia, Argentina, they figured out to feed on a sea lion. They have to time the tide right. They have to come up on the beach. They have to literally almost beach themselves. There's an amazing sequence where you show that in the show. It's just so yeah. calculated. And, and I feel bad for that poor little seal, but I, I understand that. Yeah, of course. No, we <laughs> it do. It has to happen, of course. Yeah, it's, it is nature. But, but again, you know, I think it's important to recognize that those orca in Patagonia are the the only ones in the world who do that, that no other orca do things exactly that way. And then on another part of the world, they're doing it differently. So uh, it's like humans, you know, you have a preference for international cuisine, your ethnic foods, what you like to eat. And depending where in the world, you know, that's a very important part of who you are. It's part of your identity. Hmm, that's great. And what determined your focus on the locations that are featured in the series, which really do span the globe from New Zealand to the Cook Islands to Canada's Hudson Bay? I mean, you probably had infinite options. How did you focus on the locations that we do see in the series? Yeah, well, you know, to some extent, there really wasn't uh, an infinite number of locations where you could work. So over the years that I was researching this project, I was sort of drilling down and trying to find out, you know, what time of year that the animals are in certain places, what the infrastructure was like in a given place. Some there was an infrastructure where I could charter boats and so forth. Others were more remote and we sort of had to make it up as we went along. You had to know if the visibility underwater was going to be good, what the weather might be like. Were there researchers who could, you know, provide sort of information and, and give us some historical context to what happens at certain times of the year. Did you have different people sort of staged all over the world giving you intel on the status of certain pods and populations? In many cases, yes. I mean, not in every single location. Some, as I said, we were sort of out there, you know, we went to Sri Lanka, for example, and we had a great Sri Lankan whale biologist, but her expertise had been in blue whales, and she was now just beginning to work with sperm whales, so there wasn't a great body of information there. We had to kind of go out and hope we could find whales, and we did. What most surprised you about this process along the way that forced you to maybe rethink your approach? Were there kind of curveballs that were thrown at you in terms of, oh gosh, we're not getting the video we hope to get, it's, we're not getting the audio or did everything sort of unfold as you'd planned for it to? I think it was sort of the latter, but I would give some context to that in the sense that in the book, Secrets of the Whales, I write about whale photography and the challenges that you face. First of all, as an underwater photographer, I often say I don't have the luxury that my terrestrial counterparts have. You know, I, I can't sit in a camouflage blind in some remote place and wait for a month for some elusive animal to wander by and then use a, a 600 millimeter lens to get that photo. We have to get in the water. Most all of the work that we're doing is by breath hole diving. So we're just free diving. We're holding our breath, swimming down for two or three minutes, trying to get close to these animals. So if you were to draw a Venn diagram in all these little circles of all the sort of things that have to line up. The, the whales have to be there. The weather has to be good. You have to be able to get out to them. You have to be able to get maybe within 100 meters with the boat. Then you have to slip in silently, swim that 100 meters. The whale still has to be there. The sun has to be out because if it's, it's sort of cloudy or overcast, there won't be any detail. I can't light a whale underwater. You know, you could light a, a shark. You can light a, a lobster or a sea turtle maybe with strobes. But that would also scare away the animals too, right? It could. It, it could. And scuba would scare them as well, the bubbles. So you've got to be very nimble 
very zen-like, and then they have to be doing something interesting. So all of those things have to line up. <laughs> and when you multiply that, you know, times three years, 24 locations, some very elusive species, you know, sperm whales, for example, they spend most of their life in the deep ocean. They're down hundreds of meters most of the day feeding on squid, and they only surface for maybe 20 minutes at a time to breathe. And occasionally they socialize, and those are the moments you're waiting for. So to answer your question, I had great expectations, but you know, it was the, the greatest day of my life when the story or the, the, the project got greenlit, and then the next day you wake up and say, oh my God, I have to do this now. I have to <laughs> right. deliver the goods. But that right. being said, there was almost this divine intervention in every location we got what we needed. Sometimes it took a long time. You know, my I think it was my second or third trip to Dominica in the Eastern Caribbean for sperm whales. I gave myself five weeks and the first three weeks I didn't see a single whale. And the scientist I'm working with said, you know, this has never happened before. So that's not what you want to hear when, no, uh, when, no. You, when you've got a limited amount of time. And what time of year was that? Those uh, trips were generally in the spring. You know, it's usually like April, May. Although I did go once in December and the conditions were actually much better. So it, it, it's highly variable. Wow. This sounds very stressful, Brian. <laughs> Tell me more about the holding your breath while taking the photographs. As someone who's never really done any diving of any consequence. That does sound very stressful. So tell me, first of all, how long can you comfortably hold your breath? And what kind of training have you had to undertake over the years to feel comfortable doing such a delicate dance? Well, you know, I've been diving for over four decades and most of the work I do is with scuba. So you're putting a scuba tank on and, you know, wetsuit or dry suit, you're going down with all this equipment and, and breathing underwater. But as I mentioned, with whales, that doesn't really work. It's not very effective. Uh, you, you couldn't move freely. You're very encumbered, and the bubbles would scare the whales. So free diving is really the best way to do it. I've been doing that for decades as well. I, I think I really began in a serious way back in the early 90s working with, uh, with whales and then periodically over the years with different subjects. I've actually never timed myself to see how long I can breath hold, and I think that for me, it's largely mental. I mean, I do train for sure. I, I train year round. I live on the coast of Maine. And, you know, during this project, I would be out there uh, five minutes from my house going in the water in January, February, free diving, just to get comfortable with it, wearing heavy, thick wetsuits and weight, the stuff that I would normally wear if I'm out in the Norwegian Arctic or someplace. So I was staying in training and I have an app on my phone where I can, you know, do these exercises to, you know, increase my capabilities as a breath hold uh, diver. But when you're underwater, I'm not actually timing myself. And right. I do you, think you are when, very busy doing other things <laughs> at that point. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that being said, I think if there's action, if there's something happening in front of me, if there are whales out there, I can probably stay much longer. It's if you go down and then, you know, the whale is swimming in the other direction or not interested in you and I'm usually making very short dives. So I think it, it's kind of like the cold. And many times I'll work in polar regions and I'm under 25 foot thick ice diving with seals or something. And, you know, it's 29 degree Fahrenheit water, super cold. And you really only feel the cold when nothing's happening. If there's action in front of you, your mind is very occupied, at least for me. Wow. So I think it's a little bit like that with the free diving too. So to answer your question, I would say two plus minutes, maybe on a good day I could get to three, but you know, it depends how far you had to swim to get to the whale and you, right. if you're out of breath. So And how exhausted, right? Yeah, exactly. Largely the series centers on your documentation of incredible sounds and acoustics and communications among the whales. 
My personal favorite is the Morse code that you recorded between the sperm whales. I love that clicking sound. It's so charming. Yeah. What sound did you hear that really just blew your mind that you thought, I never thought I'd be able to record this in my lifetime? Yeah, well, you make a great point, Stacy. These are acoustic animals. They live, you know, based on sound. Many of them, the toothed whales, uh, use echolocation, a type of sonar, so they see with sound as well. Uh, I think when I'm in the presence of an animal like an orca, they're scanning me. It's like being scanned by a supercomputer. They they just know everything there is <laughs> probably to know about me. But the sounds are also really interesting to hear. You mentioned the Morse code. These are the codas that sperm whales make. And I think it's important to recognize that this is really cutting edge science. You know, the researchers that we're working with have just begun to figure out that they have their own dialects, that sperm whales have dialects, and that they seem to isolate by dialects. So the ones that we were working with in the Eastern Caribbean, there's maybe 24, 25 families. They all belong to what we call a clan because they share that same dialect. And evidently, according to researchers, when two sperm whales meet in the middle of the darkness of the ocean, they say where they're from. So <laughs> one will say, I am from Dominica. And if the other one says, I am from Haiti, they go their separate ways. So, you know, I was imagining the neighborhoods of New York at the turn of the century. I was century, just thinking you know? that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, all these little enclaves of <laughs> languages. The Italians and the Irish all That's, trying to coexist, right? Exactly. That was exactly what I wrote in my proposal. So the sound, when you're in one of these social moments where the whales come together, particularly sperm whales, it's a cacophony of, of all these clicks. And, you know, you, we don't know what they're saying, but clearly there's a lot going on. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, I'm in the Canadian Arctic standing on a riverbed at an estuary where a thousand beluga whales will come in. It's their summer playground. They migrate hundreds of miles. They come to this very shallow water place to have their calves and to socialize and rub their skin on the on the. I love the bottom. part where they're rubbing their skin on the floor. Isn't that it's great? So charming. Yes. And that's stuff that had never been seen before. You know, we built uh, new cameras. We put them in remote cameras and got that behavior. But you're standing on the shore day and night. It's it's bright 24 hours a day. It's the land of the midnight sun. And here's all these sounds. You know, even at, at two in the morning, I'd go back and climb into my tent and you could just hear it all night long. So the sounds are enchanting. It's really that siren song of the ocean, I think, that that's calling to you. So I don't know about anything that I really didn't know that we could record or capture, but it is a big part of the story. So having the sound along with the behavior, the actions with each other, it's all really important to understand the full context of how these animals work. Hmm. It's amazing. And what have you found to be the most reliable and or cutting edge technologies that you use to record these sounds? And how has that changed just in the decade or 15 years you've been centering your studies on these animals? Yeah, well, you know, I think technology in general has leapfrogged ahead. We're light years ahead of where we were even a decade ago. You know, it wasn't that long ago I was shooting film underwater, and today we shoot digital. And it just gives us so much more latitude. So visually, we'll get to the sound part, but visually, you know, we can do so much more. I used to jump in the water with a still camera and have 36 frames. And today I can shoot a thousand raw files and I can adjust the ISO if it gets cloudy and, you know, adjust for all these different conditions. And the same is true with, with audio, with sound. We're putting hydrophones in the water. We can take a little digital recorder out on the boat with us, you know, whereas before we were so limited with the technology, we can use direction hydrophones, we can triangulate, we can listen, and which helps us find the whales. You know, we're, we're searching in a big ocean, so we're towing an array behind us in some cases that has this sort of triangulation technique where we're listening on multi-axis. 
accesses to find those whales. And then once we pinpoint it, we can go. So this is very important to the science, you know, because they're recording terabytes each field season of data, which is the sound the scientists don't even generally get in the water. They're staying up on the boat. They don't want to impact the whales or affect their behavior in any way. So they're up on the boat. They're just very passively listening, but they're using the highest, latest and greatest technology to record. And of course, we can capitalize on that for filmmaking. Hmm. That's so amazing. And speaking of interacting with the animals, which obviously you just try to be observational, there is a scene where someone is helping one of the whales escape from I think it was a net, a piece of a net. It was. It was a buoy, yeah. It was, and that's obviously just heartbreaking to see that. And you see turtles, you know, swimming with debris. I mean, it's just, you know, yeah. it's the hard part of doing this job. So how hard is it for you to balance that observation with wanting to help if you can help them? It's really a great question. And over the years that I've been doing this, I've many times seen troubling situations out there. And, and sort of my policy with that is that if it's a anthropogenic stress, if, if an animal is entangled in monofilament fishing line or gets caught in a, a buoy or something, and we're not going to impact the fisherman or somebody, you know, we're not going to destroy his or her fishing gear, but we can disentangle that animal, we're going to do it. I'm going to do it. I wouldn't want to do anything that would, like I said, impact somebody's livelihood. But in most of these cases, they're dragging fishing gear for miles sometimes or days, you know, we've seen it with whales and it's, it's just horrible. So, you know, the, the first impulse is when you come upon something like that, you've got the camera in your hand, you, you roll a few minutes, you get a few pictures, but then I usually immediately hand it off to my assistant. If he's in the water, I'll swim back to the boat and then, you know, grab a knife and, and go back and try to, you know, get that animal's trust and get close enough to be able to, to disentangle it. With whales, I should point out that that can be very risky and I certainly wouldn't encourage it. In the film, it was an orca that clearly knew that the cameraman was there to help it. It was almost seeking help. Yes. And you could see the rest of the orca's family around it, as you might have seen. And there's that close-up of the eye. Oh, yeah. Where you just, oh, my gosh. You just see the stress unfold on the surface of the eye. Exactly. And, you know, back in the day, I think it was 1985, I disentangled a humpback whale calf in Cape Cod Bay. And again, this was a very foolish thing to do. I would never do it again today. Didn't know how dangerous it was back then. But after about an hour in the water, I had cut all the lines off this whale. And this little humpback whale just laid there and the same kind of thing, looked at me with a, that big eye and then gently just swam off. So, I, you know, I think there is a point when you're in a situation like that where the animal does recognize that you're there to help it. But again, I, I caution anyone who would ever think of that to not do it. It's very dangerous. People have been killed trying to disentangle whales from a boat, never mind actually in the water. So it's not something that, that we recommend. In the case of the orca in the film, it was a rather benign situation. The animal was very relaxed. It was just sitting there. It's a smaller whale. It's not a, you know, a right whale or something that would be a very different story. Right. And you also know what you're doing too, versus most people listening. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But even then, I think, you know, caution is, is a good way to proceed with any of those situations. Call an expert, call the Coast Guard, call somebody, you know, they have disentanglement teams in many countries and you can come in and, and get it taken care of. So in the series, you speak a lot about gaining trust of your subjects. And I guess I'm wondering, do whales have fear of us? Because all of the interactions we see, it's, they seem so calm. They don't seem threatened. But also we haven't seen the maybe hours, days and weeks of you ingratiating yourself to them. 
So tell me a little bit about that process. And are you ever scared during this? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's really an important part of the equation because, as I mentioned, you know, even in the clearest of water, an underwater cameraman or photographer never has the luxury of using a, a very long lens. We have to get within a, a few meters of our subject, usually even closer than that, to produce an acceptable photograph or scene. So it really is up to the whales to allow us into their world. And they don't always do that. You can make a hundred jumps in the water and snorkel over and, you know, maybe three times that animal will let you close. There's never any advantage to chasing a whale or any animal underwater. They certainly can leave you in the dust if they want to. So what my sort of MO is, is to get in the water and move very, very slowly. I try to control my breathing. I try to lower my heart rate. You know, it's it's hard. I mean, you're out there, you, you have an opportunity. You can see through the viewfinder, there's a whale out there or a mom and calf or something. You don't want to scare them. You know how magical this can be if you actually get close. And can they smell fear as we sort of say, you know, other animals can? Can they sense if you feel timid? My guess is that they can sense your anxiety that if mm. they, because they're acoustic animals and they're very attuned to noises underwater that if your heart is racing if you're thrashing with your fins or making a lot of splashing noises and so forth that would be a real trigger to them it would be a flag and they would probably swim away so the more quiet you can be the more control the breathing the more relaxed the more patient you are you know some of these encounters if they're going to happen you have to let them unfold. So, you know, I might move in and stay just at the edge of visibility. You're never going to sneak up on a whale. You have to kind of move slowly, let them know you're there. In my mind, it's about, you know, thinking happy thoughts, not thinking anything, you know, that's threatening. And then, you know, eventually if they're calm and tolerant and relaxed, they will let you in and you can get close. And sometimes, you know, that tolerance turns into engagement where they're actually interested in you and they might, you know, want to play. It's rare, but it does happen. And, and we have some of that as well. I mean, there, there's the orca scene in New Zealand where this female orca sort of was feeding me a stingray, you know, so. <laughs> that was very sweet, but I felt bad that poor stingray just, you know, floated to the bottom and nobody wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I should have had a bite at least, I guess. <laughs> I know. How rude of you, Brian. <laughs> I know, really. It was. It reminded me of that scene in Indiana Jones, you know, where they're yes. handing him the, the food and, and nobody wants to eat. And he says, you're insulting me. Yeah. Exactly. Dif very different tastes. Very different tastes. Different tastes. So James Cameron is an executive producer on the series. Of course, he of Avatar fame, but also a lifelong diver. He made the movie The Abyss, which scared the hell out of me, made me never <laughs> want to dive. So thank you, James, for that. Mm. What did he bring to the storytelling process that helped you execute the series? He is a master storyteller. So he can envision a story narrative, you know, from scratch. Uh, we presented him with a narrative and he crafted it and made it even better. But he's also this great ocean explorer. I mean, he's been down to Mariana's Trench in a submarine that he designed and built. So he, in his DNA level, understands exploration. He understands aliens, right? I mean, he's right. writing about aliens and that's <laughs> yes. what these whales are. They are an alien intelligence on our planet. And he understands storytelling and the ocean and the challenges and where to balance science with a little bit more of the story and, and how to get that blend just right. So, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful privilege working with James on something like this because we come from it 
with the same ethic, you know, I mean, we, we both love exploration. We both love uh, storytelling, but his set of skills is unique in the world. And, and that adds uh, tremendous value to a project like this. Yes. It's never bad to have his name on a project. That's, well, that's, that's true too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he is king of the world as he announced at the King office. of the world. Right, right. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the culture surrounding whale protection and whale preservation. I remember growing up in the 80s, the era of Greenpeace, and I'm from the Pacific Northwest, so this was very much a part of where I grew up. People hanging from bridges, you know, draping signs across traffic overpasses. And that made an impact on me because it really introduced me early on to these causes as a young person. Mm. How has that sort of battle cry evolved in the last 40 years? And what is the state of whale health today because the series I have to say doesn't dwell too much on their endangeredness and you know outside of the pollution aspects that you sort of briefly mentioned it seems like whales are thriving so tell me a little bit about maybe that's just my optimistic takeaway <laughs> but also well, what is the state of the whale now yeah I, I think it's it's an accurate uh, representation of what's going on many of the species have rebounded substantially humpbacks for example have really done well since the post-whaling days. Now, there are, of course, still countries that that do engage in, in commercial whaling. I mean, there's Russia, there's Iceland, Norway, Japan, and so forth. So unfortunately, whaling still exists. Most of the world doesn't do that anymore. And I think, you know, to a large extent, it, it is on the decline. So that has helped a number of species recover. On the other end of the spectrum, however, there are still whales that are on the brink. You know, where I live in New England, we have the most endangered whale in the world, this North Atlantic right whale, which, you know, if you read these anecdotal reports, they say when the pilgrims landed in Massachusetts in 1620, they could walk across Cape Cod Bay on the backs of, of right whales because they were so plentiful. Wow. And today there's only about 350 of them left and they're getting entangled in fishing gear, lobster traps and crab pots, and they get hit by ships and pollution might be affecting their reproduction. So we could very easily see the extinction of that species in our lifetime. They could very well go away. But the bigger threat even globally is what you alluded to, and that is the toxins that we have dumped into the ocean. Whales, of course, are at the top of the food chain in the ocean. They absorb everything else that has been eaten or ingested, and the things that they eat have all of those toxins within their body. In the episode about orca, we have that scene where there's a, a mom carrying her dead baby. Mm. Um, I photographed that on Thanksgiving Day. It was the first Thanksgiving in the course of my career where I was away from home. I woke up that morning thinking about Turkey and wishing I was home with my family and, you know, celebrating cold, snowy day. Got on the boat, we went out and we saw this family of orca, you know, moving through the fjord, got underwater and saw this mom carrying her dead calf. Now, we don't know how that animal died, but there's a high probability that it died because of the toxins she passed on to it through her placenta, that many calves of orcas die, that there's a high mortality rate because of the PCBs, the chemicals, the heavy metals, all these things that are absorbed into the bloodstream. So I think that's the bigger problem. You know, we get at the fact of, with Secrets of the Whales that these animals are ambassadors 
for the ocean and in many ways for the planet. You know, they have rich cultures. They're found everywhere. They're all over the world and so forth. But they're also these these animals that are suffering because of these ills all over the world. So even though the, the series and, and the project wasn't overtly about conservation, it's my hope and it was from the beginning that it might pay that dividend, that the benefit for people will be that they will see the ocean and our planet in a way that they didn't before, you know, and that's a bit of a game changer if they can see it through that lens of culture and these families that are doing wonderful things, but they're also suffering. So Brian, we always want listeners of this podcast to understand how their behaviors directly impact animal wildlife. In the case of whales, what can we do aside from cutting down plastic usage? Is there anything else we can kind of call upon of our of the companies that we use or the products that we use to lessen these toxic you know impacts on these animals? Yeah, there absolutely is, Stacy. You know, I think you hit right at the heart of it and that is being an informed consumer and an informed citizen. How you vote, of course, matters as well. But let's get to the consumer part. So, you touched on plastics. You know, every single year right now on planet Earth, we are dumping in excess of 18 billion pounds of plastic into the ocean on an annual basis. I mean, think of that number. It's staggering. And this is something that doesn't have to happen. We have a choice about that. Now, again, it's going to take a collective effort from many different factions. But at the end of the day, if we just choose to not use single-use plastic containers to drink water you know, and other things, we can eliminate a big part of that. And we can also demand, you know, when we go to the grocery store, we can tell the grocer, you know, that they shouldn't be buying from these companies, that there are alternatives. So the more we know, the better choices we can make. We can also do that about the things we eat. You know, fish in the ocean are what most whales eat. They eat herring or they eat, you know, salmon or, or krill or whatever it might be. So being an informed consumer about fish and seafood is an important part of that equation too. You can download these these seafood watch cards from a number of aquariums, from National Geographic, Monterey Bay Aquarium, New England Aquarium. They have these cards or listings that would show you what are better things to eat. So just doing that, I mean, there's a real problem with overfishing in the world. You know, it's not just that these whales are getting entangled in the fishing gear, but their source of food is being taken as well. I think at the end of the day, it's kind of like the quote from Margaret Mead, you know, who said, never underestimate the power of a of a dedicated individual or a small group of dedicated individuals to change the world. We do have that power. And I go back to the political part of that equation too, you know, how we treat this planet, voting for people who believe in science, who care about conservation. You know, I still remain optimistic about the future, but I see that window of opportunity closing and we have a limited amount of time to get things right. So gets back to, you know, telling good stories. I mean, hopefully a story like Secrets of the Whales, which isn't beating people over the head with bad news, and it's more of a celebratory project. But at the end of the day, we maybe leave with a little bit more insight into these citizens that we share the planet with and hope that that we want to treat it better um, for them and for ourselves. That's right. And I think that the series, if nothing else, whets someone's appetite to want to see these gorgeous creatures in person. And I'd love to know my two-part final question Where's your favorite place in the world to whale watch just for fun, like when you don't have to be recording them and photographing them just to watch them? And what have you learned from whales that you've tried to take into your own life? Mm, great questions. Uh, you know, the first part I would say 
because I live in New England, it's really easy for me to get on a, a boat at the New England Aquarium or someplace in Boston and, and go out onto Stellwagen Bank and see humpbacks, you know, very easily. If I were to journey uh, far away, I, I love New Zealand, places like Kaikoura to go out and see sperm whales, you know, these giant majestic males, the, the animals that we didn't see a whole lot of during the filming of Secrets of the Whales because we didn't go to Kaikoura, but that would be a fun place to go. But there's any place that you go and see a whale is, is a pretty good day. As for the second part of your question, what I sort of learned or took away, I think these last three years of sort of intensive work with whales reminded me of what I already knew, the things that matter to our own lives. What I learned is that to these animals, family matters. They celebrate their families. Many of them are matrilineal societies. They're led by the older, wiser females. They Very, very smart of them. Yes, I would say. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Just like the elephants too, right? Exactly. You know, I have a wife and two daughters and I dedicated my book to them and, and I made that analogy. I said, like the whales, you know, they're strong leaders. But, you know, they celebrate their mothers, their grandmothers, their children. They don't fight. There's no wars. Even though two sperm whales that speak different dialects might go their own way, they're not in conflict with each other either. You know, they make time for fun. You know, I've got footage and, and pictures of beluga whales um, who have to go through so much strife to get to this place in the Arctic where they spend their, you know, summer vacation. They go hundreds of miles, but yet in the midst of those challenging days, they're picking up pebbles and swimming with them and playing these games of catch, you know? So I think have a little fun, celebrate your family. Your life is rich with society, with that social bond. And that's what whales are doing every single day out there. So I think it was a reinforcement of what I already knew, but it was nice to see. And they don't watch TV and they don't engage in social media, <laughs> which is why they seem so happy. Much smarter, much smarter than <laughs> us. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Brian. This has been so inspiring and has just made me want to take another trip to see whales really wherever I can, as soon as we can safely do so. I think you should do it. Thank you, Stacy. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Brian Scary for joining me today. For more information on Secrets of the Whales, please visit natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this has been the making of a Nat Geo podcast. Thank you for listening. The making of a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Writers and producers, Dave Beesing, Thomas Green, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Associate producer, Shanna Blackman. And production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.